you have your Bibles, please go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue uh, from, uh, from verse 1 and 2 this morning. Uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago, two weeks in fact, uh, we had a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 that speaks about the aspiration to become an elder. And then what happens is Paul then writes to Timothy about what he should be looking for in an elder. And uh, this is where we want to camp out this morning. We want to have a look at biblical eldership in the local church. Uh, so let's go straight in and uh, let's not waste too much time. Uh, we're going to have to really push it if you're hoping to be finished here by about 5 to 11. Uh, no, no, 5 to 12. Uh, we're going to push it to get done before then. So here we go. It's on the screen behind me if you don't have your Bible with you. The saying is trustworthy, Luke. Thank you. The saying is trustworthy. If anybody aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, all right, so the, the aspiration to be an elder, he's aspiring something that's noble. And because the role of elder and what an elder does is noble, therefore, he says, the overseer must be. So he goes on to describe what an overseer must be because being an overseer and the role that an overseer plays in the church is noble. So because it's noble, this is what you should be looking for. So you don't just put anyone in there who, hey, I want to be an elder. Oh, that's, I mean, that, that you're aspiring something that's great. Come and be an elder. He's going, all right, first the person needs to aspire to it. Now, what should you be looking for? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Notice the link between his household and church. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, that's not just the church, outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now what's important to notice is that Paul is now giving Timothy advice on what he should be looking for. Uh, Paul writes this letter to Timothy to lay the plumb line of faith in the church and conduct and uh, to, to organize the church well. He writes to Titus two books later, after 2 Timothy, he writes to Titus, and he gives Titus some qualifications of what an elder should look like as well. In fact, he says to Titus, I want you to appoint elders in every city where we've left off over here, and this is what you should be looking for. And if you read Titus uh, chapter 1, and from, from about verse 3 to 9, and you read uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 to 7, there's a lot of overlap. Some of them mention, uh, some that are not mentioned in the other, but there's this incredible overlap in terms of the characteristics that are looked for in, uh, in those who are being elders. Now, there's a number of problems in church leadership and, uh, that we have uh, and, and ma maybe we've inherited as well. If elders are meant to be those who lead the church and we're supposed to follow those, straight away you and I start to feel a little bit edgy. As soon as I say that, as soon as I say in a context like this, elders are meant to lead and we are meant to follow, we start to feel a little bit edgy. Here are some of the reasons why we feel a bit edgy. Because there are some elders who abuse their people. There are some elders who abuse the position of eldership. 
There are some people who abuse their leaders. There's some elders who don't lead. There's some elders who are not given the authority to lead. So they've given the responsibility, but no authority. And there are some people who refuse to follow. Now, I share these with you, not saying this is us as a church, but this we carry in with us. As soon as somebody stands up and says, you must obey those who are in authority over you, you start to evaluate that based on those who have authority in, very, in other areas. And we go, well, hang on. If leaders act like this in those areas, why will they not act like that in this area? And when I read the newspapers, I read, as I shared a few weeks ago, I read about Pastor X, Y, or Z who did these things. How can I be sure that our leaders are not doing those things over here? And so, as Paul writes, he says, when you choose somebody to be an elder, to be a leader in the life of the church, to shepherd God's flock, these are the things you need to look for. This is what it needs to be. So you don't want to look for a person who is uh, just theologically qualified. You don't want to look for a person who is just older, um, over a certain level of age. That's not what you're looking for. You don't want to look for someone who's just been in the church for a certain period of time. There's some clear characteristics that you should be looking for when you're appointing somebody to be an elder. And when that functions well, when you have the right people in the right positions, it's easy to follow leaders who are leading in the way that God's word is talking about. It is easy to follow those leaders who you know have your best interests at heart. It makes it easy to do those things. Now, if you have a look at the first point that I want to raise here is having a look at verse 1. It says that, that, that you must desire to be an elder. And then in Titus, he says, I want you to appoint elders in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. And he has the point is that elders are appointed to lead the church. Elders are appointed, and we need to get this, this clear, is often we could think, well, why is so-and-so not an elder? Well, why should so-and-so be an elder? Well, as I said just now, they have a theological degree. No, no, God's Word doesn't say anything about that. Why isn't so-and-so an elder? They're a pastor. Yeah, but the Bible doesn't say a pastor should be an elder either. Okay, well, why isn't so-and-so an elder? I mean, their family have given a heap of money to the church. Right? Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about that. Okay, but I think that so-and-so should because he, in his personal capacity, has done heaps for the church. All right? But that doesn't say that he should be an elder either. So you don't just become an elder. Being an elder is not like a river where you jump into the river of salvation and you start floating down and then you float past being youth, a youth pastor and a Sunday school teacher and then you float past being a deacon and then you float into being an elder. It's not like that. An elder is somebody who's appointed to that position, called by God, recognized by the congregation, and then set apart and appointed to lead, not just occupy a chair. It's not like the church has a table and there are 10 seats around the table. And then one of the guys moves the towns and you know what, there's one empty chair. And we're like, okay, we need to fill this chair. Um, let's find a guy with a theological degree with... Uh, you know, who's given a lot of time to the church. A person, I mean, they must have been born into the church because we don't want someone, you know, who's been here the longest? We'll put them into that position. It doesn't work like that. You're appointed, called by God, set apart by the people, given authority to lead so that you can lead the congregation. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 says that we need to pay careful attention to ourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. The call is from the Holy Spirit. 
to be overseers. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says that your leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. It, it means this, that if you're called to the position of elder, you will one day be accountable not only for the way you lived your life, but also for the way that the congregation lived their lives. And I just reverse back. Did you hear what I just said? It means this, that as elders, we are not only responsible for our lives, gents, but we're responsible for the way that the people sitting behind you live their lives. In other words, when we come across somebody who we know is in sin, we have a responsibility to shepherd that person out of that sin and into victorious living. And if we don't, and we know that they're in sin, and we're not shepherding them out, one day God will hold us accountable for that. So who wants to be an elder? Really? How hard is that? How hard is that? How hard is it to hear from somebody when they come to you and say, let's have a chat. I've noticed this in your life. I've noticed sin in your life. And, and you, you can either go, okay, I've got it. I'm moving out of that sin. Or you can say, how dare you speak to me about my sin? Have you seen yours? See, that's the wrong attitude. Because as elders, the responsibility for an elder is to shepherd people into righteous living, to shepherd people into victorious living, to watch and care for people that the enemy is not coming and plundering your life. And when you're in sin, the enemy is plundering your life. So as elders, you're called by God, set apart by the people, and appointed to lead and shepherd. And that's what we're called to do, is to lead. And so we have to go and lead. Secondly, you'll notice he says, all right, they, I want them to lead. This is what elders do now. This is what you should look for. Because we're nervous about leadership, aren't we? Right? We're nervous about leadership. Uh, you know, and, and the reason why we're nervous about leadership is because, let's face it, leadership hasn't really done a good job of leadership, such a good job of leadership wherever we look. Many church leaders have failed in their um, in their ability to lead. Many of our political leaders have let us down. Many people who lead in the job uh, market or in the marketplace, we look and we go, man, I wish I could have done a better job. Until one day we're in a position like that and we realize how hard it is to actually fulfill that responsibility. It's really hard. You have a look at just what's happened in our country and in America at the moment. In this last week, yesterday I, I watched the president sharing um, some of his thoughts on the last week. He said, I don't care if I go to jail. I'm not afraid of jail. I, I was in jail for 10 years. So I don't care if I go to jail. 700 odd charges. America, Trump and Clinton are both gunning to be president of the country. Trump's Trump card is this lady is going to be investigated during her term if she becomes president. And she could even go to jail as the president. And everyone's going, no way that a president of our country could go to jail. No, and they're so shocked, and we've become, it's normal. You know, it's like, oh, that could happen. Okay, it could happen. It might not happen. And so you've got differing worldviews wherever you go, but you've got a whole nation on the other side of the pond going, can we have leaders like this? And you've got people on, on this side of the pond going, how do we have leaders like this? And so when we step up as churches and we say, right, guys, let's set aside people to lead, we go, are you mad? Are you crazy? We better put in some steps over here. Yes, you can lead. All right, so we'll set apart an elder to lead. But you can't make any decisions unless you've gone through this committee. 
And that committee needs to make sure that before it allows that person to make the decisions, that that committee must have this committee check it out first. And so there's two or three committees checking out to make sure that the person who's leading can actually lead. But then let's not forget that the person leading is the person who spent weeks thinking about the decision, months praying through that decision, only to be switched around by those who are just like, I don't think that's a good idea. Let's just chuck it out. And so as churches, we trudge through the, the peanut butter of progress in order to reach what we believe God's vision and dream is for us. And, and, and again, let me say I'm speaking generally here, of how we respond to leadership. So, God's word says that elders must lead. We get a bit nervous on what that looks like, but now let's have a look at what the character of the elder must be. He's chosen not because he's been there a long time. He's chosen not because he has a lot of money, he has a, the, the biggest voice in a, in a church meeting. He's chosen not because he has a theological degree. He's chosen and appointed largely because of his faithful character. If you read in 1 Timothy and in Titus, these are character issues. These are not qualifications that he's earned at a university. These are character issues. These are not just behaviors, they characters. You see, you can fake it with behavior for long enough, but character eventually comes through. So let's have a look over here. 1 Timothy 1, uh, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7, Titus 1 verses 5 to 9. And these are four big issues that you'll see coming out into the character. Uh, issue number one, or big area number one, is his home life. Luke, give it to us. His home life. Secondly, his spiritual life. Thirdly, his public life. And fourthly, and this is definitely not lastly, you could divide it up in other ways. I've divided it into four. His personal life. When you read 1 Timothy and when you read Titus, there are these four big areas that describe the character of the man who should be chosen to be an elder. Firstly, his personal life. This is what it says in 1 Timothy. Now the elder must be above reproach. Titus says it like this, the elder must be blameless. In fact, Titus says it twice. He must be blameless. Why? Because he must be an example of who we're all supposed to be. That's why. He's meant to be that example. He's meant to be above reproach. He's not meant to be the guy who's blowing it all the time. And like, ah, you know, we're all human beings. The foot of the cross is level. Yeah, we get that. But if you want to be an elder, you must be an example of what we aspire to. That's what it is. Examples, elders are meant to set the bar high and go, that's what we're shooting for. So blameless, above reproach. One who loves what is good, upright, holy. Timothy says he must be temperate. Titus says not quick-tempered. Titus, uh, Timothy says self-controlled. He's written to Timothy. Uh, Paul says to Timothy, he must be self-controlled. To Titus, he says self-controlled and disciplined. Okay, so at that point, just wondering, Trevor, Vickers, how many of you, you know, I mean, this, I mean, we nailed it, did we? <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking at this going, I don't even have to get through to public life, home life, spiritual life. Right there, I feel like I'm disqualified. Right there at that point, no, public life. This is out there. So this is like, hey, we don't just live in a bubble, all right? As elders, you don't become an elder and then all of a sudden you, kind of, you move your whole family onto the church compound. 
You get one of the offices to live in. Uh, you never go out of there. Uh, no one outside of the walls of the church ever sees you. You never have to deal with uh, the issues of society. I know some people think that's what happened, but that isn't what happens. We live in a world just like you. When the rand goes one way, it goes one way in my life. When it goes, when it's strong, it's also strong in my life. You know, uh, that's the way that life works. But in our public life, to Timothy, Paul says he must be respectable. I would say this, guys. Would you measure your own life on some of these? Don't, I hope you're not just kind of relegating this to, Matt is preaching so hard at Vickers and Trevor this morning. I hope that's not what it is. I hope you're not all going, yeah, yeah. Guys, if anyone taps you on the shoulder, you're just like, hey, I just got tapped on the shoulder here. Just, someone just tapped me. No, we're not preaching to the elders here. All men, this is what we aspire to. All of us go for this one over here. Respectable in terms of our public life. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. How's your reputation? How's your reputation in the marketplace? The way you do business, how you do business, the kind of business that you're in. Do you have a good reputation with outsiders so that you will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap? You know what the devil's trap is? Hypocrisy. The devil's trap is telling you it's okay for you to behave like this from Monday to Saturday and like this you can act in another way and that's okay. Do you know what? The Bible says it's not okay, but even if you don't want to pay attention to the Bible, the world says it's not okay. Sorry, the Bible says it's not okay, but if you don't want to pay attention to the Bible, the world says it's not okay. People who are not sitting in this building today say it's not okay to act holy here and go and do something out there. These are people who are not even Christians. They go, it's wrong. It's, they recognize it is wrong. Even people who say, you can't tell me what's wrong. That everything's relative and we just make it up as we go. Even those say and recognize it is wrong to act holy here and live unholy out there. How's the reputation with outsiders? He's not a lover of money. Titus is written to, it says in, in Titus, he's not pursuing dishonest gain. Timothy is hospitable. Titus says the same thing. He must be hospitable. Why is this issue of hospitality so great? One of the books that I was reading on this, the guy says he came to visit a church in Washington for the very first time. He sat at the back of the church and uh, the pastor, whoever did the, the announcement, said, hey, why don't you greet those sitting around you? Kind of like we do every now and again. And, and so somebody turned around and said, oh, hello, how are you? Started having a bit of a conversation. Anyway, the service continued. And at the end of the service, the guy turned around again. Hey, you know, how did you enjoy the service you hear for the first time? Blah, blah, blah. More of a conversation. 15 minutes later, the guy who's the, the new guy gets invited to the church member's house for lunch. Hey, how about coming to lunch at our house today? And, he says, like, and so he says, like any good Southern Baptist, I said, thank you for the invitation, but not today. And he was like, he must be a crackpot. Who invites you to come and have lunch at the house? They don't even know who you are. He could be an axe murderer for all he knows. That's the reality. It's like, how scared have we become of doing that? But guys, hospitality is so important. It gives us an opportunity to show love to each other. It gives us an opportunity to show care for each other. It gives us an opportunity to build relationship with each other. It gives us an opportunity to share our faith with other people. And it's so easy. When you invite someone to your house after church, here's something you can talk about. Church. You know, you invite someone around for a brown Friday night, it's very difficult to go, so, here's your steak, what do you think about church? 
What, what are you talking about? We're talking about rugby tomorrow. That's what we want to talk about, you know? But you invite somebody to your house after church, here's your steak. So what did you think about church today? Oh, it was wonderful. You know? What did you think about the pastor's message? Yeah, it was quite hard-hitting. Hey, what did you think about that thing where he said, Jesus is the only way? That, I mean, you know, as a visitor, how did that make you feel? It's okay to have that conversation because this, this gathering, sets the context. And who cares if your house is messy? Right? Who cares? Everybody's house is messy on a Sunday. Everybody. If your house is not messy today, put up your hand. We're coming to your house after this. Right? We're coming to your house for coffee afterwards and lunch. We're going to stay there for supper. And as someone in the 8 o'clock said, and we're going to mess your house up. <laughs> Hospitable. Titus and Timothy, not given to drunkenness. How are you managing your alcohol? How are you managing that, guys? Are we a good example of being able to stay out of drunkenness? Not violent, but gentle. Titus echoes, not violent. Not quarrelsome. Titus echoes, not overbearing. And we live in a world where men are told to, to do those things. You know, you're a hero if you are violent, if you are quarrelsome, if you are angry, if you, that's how a hero is in society. But God's word saying, other way around. Thirdly, his home life. He's the husband of but one wife. He must manage his own family well. And see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Paul says to Timothy, to Titus, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and who are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Tough passage of scripture because it raises the question, can a man who's been divorced be an elder? Can, can he? Because he must be the husband of but one wife. Now remember, we've spoken about this before. When you come to a difficult portion of scripture, you always interpret it within the context of the text and the text in context. It's very important for us to understand this. And so in the context of this, you need to, need to see the day that Paul is writing to you. What, what is happening in the day is that sexual immorality is rife. In fact, it is so bad that in some areas they had to dredge the riverbeds of baby carcasses so that the ships could sail the riverbeds. Because people would rather drown their fetuses and drown their newborns and enjoy life than raise children. That's the reality of the day. Polygamy is something that is on the horizon. But not only that, multiple partners is on the horizon as well. Multiple sexual partners. And this is the norm. And so when somebody comes in and says, you need to be the husband of but one wife, everyone's going, like, whoa, 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 whoa. When you come in and you're writing to people and saying, hey, you need to flee sexual immorality. And they're going like, well, what does that mean? Don't you mean flee to sexual immorality? No, no, flee from sexual immorality. Ah, oh, that's a tough one. I don't, I don't, I don't, don't just can't. It's like knee jerk. It's like, what? 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 Why, why are you saying that? When Paul says, hey, these are acts of the sinful nature. Put them away. People are going, what? Why would we do that? And so Calvin and uh, D.A. Carson say, in this context, Paul's writing this to, 
to set a new standard for what marriage should be. That, that those who are elders are meant to be the example. And so they need to be men who have one wife so that the rest of the church can go, that's the new model for family. So that any young man who's wanting to get married, who comes into the church and he loves Jesus and he's going, I like her and I like her, I'll just take them both. He goes, no, no, let me look at the example of the leaders. I like her, I like her, I need to commit to one, I need to be a one-woman man, I need to give myself fully to her, she will give herself fully to me, and one wife for life. That's how it's going to be. Can you see that? Whole new uh, family structure coming up through the church. Before that, it wasn't like that. This is, there's a new family structure over here. There's something that looks different. Not multiple wives, one wife for life. He needs to be the wife of one man. But also continuing, and this is where John MacArthur falls in. John MacArthur says, not only that, but he's saying that those men who are elders, if you're a husband of one wife, it means that you have fled sexual immorality. You're not a guy who's living with another woman. You're married to her. She is your wife. And in the context of that marriage relationship, that's where you find your sexual satisfaction, not outside of it. He's saying, listen up. This is to God's will. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. Your sanctification, your becoming more like Jesus, that you abstain from sexual immorality. So John MacArthur says, elders need to set the example in sexual purity. That's what we shoot for. I remember once having a conversation with one of our young adults. They were getting married. And, uh, and I was like, so how's it going in the marriage prep? He said, man, it, it's great. But man, I'm taking strain from some of my friends. I said, what do you mean you're taking strain from some of your friends? And he said this. He said, my friends are saying that I'm crazy to want to get married. I go, why do they say you're crazy because you want to get married? They're saying, well, why get married? I'm so young. We should just live together. I'm going, okay. He says, Matt. I mean, I see in God's word it doesn't say that, but it's, it's not only my friends who are not Christians saying that. It's my, some of my friends who are Christians are saying that as well. Friends, we need to have a much higher view of what marriage is. Much higher view of what it is. That anything less than marriage is less. It's, it, it doesn't count. That I'm not going to engage myself in something that's less. It's like you have this beautiful, pure, fresh water to drink. That's the standard, and instead we're going to drink water that has algae in it, and it's got dead animals floating in it. We're going, let me drink that instead. No, no, let's raise the standard of what purity looks like. This tastes better, is better, nourishes me better. That, it might wet my lips, but actually long-term, it's going to cause some damage. Do you understand that? What John MacArthur is saying is that elders are meant to be the example of that. Because can you imagine somebody comes to you, you know, he says, hey, you know what God's word says, you must abstain from sexual immorality. And the person goes, yeah, your girlfriend and your other girlfriend told me that they're struggling with you because you're cheating on both of them. Get it? Elders need to be the example of that. So what about the issue of can a man who has been divorced? Well, let's understand what scripture says. One, uh, Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a brand new creation. Somebody who is divorced before they come to know Christ and their marriage ends, now they come to know Christ and they're growing in the Lord, they meet somebody, they get married. Okay? 
Can that person be an elder? Well, why not? Because you and I also sinned before we came to know Christ, and sin is sin. So why not? Is that person honoring God in his, in his marriage relationship? Well, why not? Well, what happens if the person got divorced while they were a Christian and, and the whole church knew about it? Well, if they got divorced and for outside of biblical reasons, uh, which is adultery and abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, then my suggestion would be it would be better if that person is not an elder, not because of who they are or what they've done, but because it's difficult for that person to be above reproach and to continually dodge the finger pointing of those who are outside. Because every single time the person stands up to lead communion, which they may be well entitled to do, every time the person stands up to preach, every time the person visits somebody in hospital and cares for somebody and points out sin in somebody's life and tries to shepherd them, people are saying, how dare you do it? We know about what happened in your life. And this is the reason why, as a pastor or a lead elder in a church, if we blow it in terms of morality, if there's a moral failure, we should step out. We should step out. Not because the congregation can't forgive us, but because the culture we live in, that brings a bad reputation to the church. Not because of how Jesus has uh, restored the, the person, not because of how the congregation has forgiven them, but because they're outsiders saying, that's bad. And so we step back. And we go, I'll step back and let somebody else step up into that position. So let's talk about the last one, his spiritual life. He must not be a recent convert. Or he may be conceited and fall under the judgment of the devil, which is pride. Hey, look at me, everyone. I've just been an old, uh, you know, I, I've only been a Christian for a few months and now I'm an elder. And so in our church, um, in order to be an elder, you have to be a member for a year. You need to be a member in our church for a year before you become an elder. Because we want to be able to see, is this person um, committed to the church and has, is this person growing in their faith? Titus is told he must hold firmly to the trust. Oh, Timothy says he must be able to teach Titus. It's Titus, it says, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He must be able to teach. It doesn't mean he will always be teaching, but he must be able to teach. It doesn't mean that he will be preaching from the pulpit all the time, but it means he must be able to engage, take the scriptures and open the scriptures to people. He must understand the issues of the day and how they apply to the scriptures and understand the issues in the scriptures and be able to explain them to people. I wish that all of you could sit in our elders' meetings. We've been dealing with... Um, a, a, a topic which is um, we've really had to get our head into. We've, we've had to take God's word and, and, and engage with that and, uh, and kind of go like, I disagree with it. I don't understand how you say that. Why? How? And, and find our way and, and make kind of adjustments and go, okay, well, I think I might have been a bit off where the scriptures are on this. Let me make adjustment in. Let me make adjustment out. Um, let me try to let us understand so that as elders we can come out and go, this is what we believe on this issue so that as a church we can have one picture of where we're going. Right? That's so important. Let me give you an example of how that could work badly. Imagine there's an elder over there and he's saying to this group over here, you know what? 
I think you have to do A, B, and C. This group say A, B, and C is really wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing X, Y, and Z. This group over here, they're going, ah, oh, it doesn't really matter which one you do. Why get into arguments? Let's just all be fun. You know? This group over here is going, if you do A, B, C, D, or E, or X, Y, and Z, you're wrong. And then we stand up and we go, right, everybody, let's be one church. How do we do that? It's important that as elders we know what are the things that we're holding onto with closed hands, what are the things that we're going to allow to be open-handed, and what are the things that we're going to say and teach in our church. Doctrine, because that's what we believe elders are called to, to God's sound doctrine. And it's important that elders are able to do that. So he must be able to do that in his, lives, in, in his life, encouraging others by sound doctrine and refuting those who don't believe it. It means that you might say one day in a Bible study, an elder or even a small group leader might say, hey, this is what God's word says about how we should live our lives. And you go, well, I don't agree with that because you're not doing it in your life. I don't agree with that. Well, actually, the elder's role is to refute you and say, but you're wrong. You're wrong on that one. You need to make some changes in your life. If you want to honor Christ, you can't live this way anymore. You have to make a change in your life. And some of those things are really difficult. What could those things be? We'll read through some of the characteristics. You check in your own life. Where am I not in line with some of these characteristics? And you'll very quickly see where you need to make some adjustments. So let's nail through some of the other big ones quickly. You see, elders are there to, they're appointed largely by their faithful character. They're appointed to lead. But also to, to notice this, that you don't just find the one guy and tell him he's in charge. Elders are meant to be a team. There's a plurality of elders and elder teams were the norm. And if you read through Acts 16, 20, and 21, you see continually this reference, the elders, the elders in this church, the elders in that church. 1 Peter chapter 5, the elders among you. He's writing to a church and talking about the elders. So it's not just one guy who makes all the decisions. It's a group of people together. But while it's a group of people together and there's no hierarchy in that group over there, the leadership within that group is not ambiguous. There is leadership within that group. You can imagine, like a bicycle tire. All, you know, many of you have ridden bicycles before. A bicycle tire will always, at some point, have one part of the wheel on the ground. But that part of the wheel is not always on the ground, because if it is always on the ground, you can't ride the bicycle. It needs to move around all the time. And so it is. Leadership within this team. Leadership gets applied, applied applied and sometimes it's leadership and this person has a prophetic gift and that prophetic gift is applied and then wisdom is applied and then discernment is applied and then and so as those gifts are used momentum takes place just as different parts of the wheel touch the ground if you always leave leadership on the ground you go nowhere get it and so this is important because while we're meant to lead in a team and there's no hierarchy in that team leadership within that team is not ambiguous if you take a look at acts chapter 15 it's the council at jerusalem and this is an amazing story where Paul is coming to the church, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. These are the apostles and these are the elders of the church at Jerusalem. Number one church, numero uno, first church out of the blocks, the church at Jerusalem. All the big shots are there. And he comes to bring this idea of what do we do with the Gentiles who've come to faith? If Jews are meant to do these things that are part of our tradition and our customs, must Gentiles do them as well? Or is it something different? You know, are there some other standards for being a Christian that are different to Jews and different for Gentiles? So they come and they have this conversation. 
And it says that he brings the matter to the apostles and the elders. Now, the apostles are the guys who write the scriptures. Surely you just meet with the apostles? Surely you just go to them and go, like, these are the big shots. You know, the elders, that's the B class, but we're going to go to the apostles on this one. Well, that tells me a couple of things. It tells me, one, that the highest court of authority in a local church is not the apostles. It's the local eldership. But two, it tells me that the apostles and the elders work together. Three, what comes out later is that even in that case over there, there is leadership within the eldership that is recognized even by the apostles. So watch what happens over here. It says this in verse 13. After they finished speaking, this is Acts chapter 15. After they finished speaking, James replied, this is James. He's the lead elder at the church of Jerusalem. He's the leader, and this is why we know he's the leader. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those Gentiles who turn to God. It is my judgment. All right? This is James. James, he's not, he's not an apostle. He's not one of the, the apostles. This is Jesus' brother. He's one of the elders okay, at the church. He stands up and he goes, it's my judgment. Well, that's interesting. This is my judgment. You've got Peter there. You've got John there. You've got, you've got all these guys sitting over there who are apostles, uber apostles. And he goes, it's my judgment. He's leading this church. And he's leading this team. He's the leader amongst the team. He says this, it is my judgment. We should not trouble them. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders together. They now agree with this. And to the whole church, so not just the apostles and the elders. Now the whole church is agreeing with his judgment, and they decide, you know what? We're not going to add extra burdens on. We are going to send Paul and Barnabas to them. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 11, James's implied leadership, uh, or James's leadership is implied when legalistic men came from his church um, to the church in Galatia. Paul is writing about his relationship with Peter, calls him Cephas in this case. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, that James, they didn't say certain men came from Jerusalem, certain men came from James, it's recognizing James's leadership. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Friends, leadership within this context is not ambiguous, it is recognized. There is leadership in there, but note this. This leadership is to be servant-based. Matthew 20 and 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us we don't lord that leadership over, rather we serve. Christ's leadership is to serve. It's the other way around. It's not you will, it's we will. That, that's what it is, we will. 1 Peter says we, we shepherd one another. We shepherd the flock. We look after the flock. We give them good food to eat. We watch where, where, the, where the wolves come in to destroy. We, we're guarding the flock. Number five is discerning the will of God in this context is a team effort. And again, I wish you could come and sit with our elders and, and just notice how God's will for our church is discerned, that we have that conversation and we pray and we hear what we're saying and we hear point of view. And, and then we go, you know what? It seems like God is leading us in this direction. We've never voted on anything as elders. Never gone like, oh, we're going to vote. Never. Because we want to discern God's will together, not vote God's will. We want to discern it together. And so we see this in Paul's missionary journeys in Acts chapter 16. Paul is on a missionary journey and he's heading one way. And in a dream, a man from Macedonia comes and speaks to him and says, come and help us in Macedonia. Paul wakes up, calls his, um, his mates together who are on the trip with him. And he says, hey, guys, I've just had this dream. A man from Macedonia called me. Now, I know we're going there. But it, this man said, I must come there. 
And so this is what it says. We discerned together that God wanted us to go to Macedonia. Again, you don't discern together when you're having a conversation about the Lord's direction with Paul. Paul writes two-thirds of the New Testament when Paul wakes up after a quiet time and says, I had a dream that God said we must go to Macedonia. You go, all right, do you want eggs with your bacon? That's how it goes. You don't say to Paul, oh, let's consider that. But notice how leadership happens in the context of team. Discerning God's will happens in the context of that team. That's how leaders are supposed to lead in the church. And if that's happening, it makes me feel a whole lot more comfortable with people leading. If they're leading together, if there's responsibility and accountability together. We spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, but the concept of men being elders. Why? When you have a look at the scriptures, we see deacons being men or women. We see uh, men and women pastoring um, small groups, small, uh, small groups and, and churches, men and women doing that. But when it comes to elders, we only see men being spoken about as being elders. And the word for elder is a masculine word. There are two different ways you can have words in, in the Greek language, either masculine or fem three, actually. Masculine, feminine, or neutral. Whenever elders are spoken about, it's always masculine. Always. And so we wonder, why is that? Is that maybe a cultural thing, or isn't that? I believe that the reason why that's the case is because men are meant to be an example in the church. Elders are meant to be an example in the church of how men are supposed to lead their families. That's why elders are supposed to lead their homes well. So that those of us who are not elders go, I want to lead my home well. How do I do it? Let me follow the, exa the example of the elders. How do I lead my home well? Let me take these characteristics and unpack them in the context of family. Let, let me take those things. And I can tell you now, if you take those things like me, you'll be able to go very quickly. This is where I have to work on things. This is where I have to work on things. This is where I have to work on things. You just take it. You'll be able to see very quickly, men, how we're supposed to um, take our game to the next level in our families. But also dealing with the issue of authority. Because when you come to Matthew, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. Do you remember that, that conversation we had, that sermon? I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. Now, nowhere does God's word say that gifts are gender um, specific. In 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, as all the gifts are being spoken about, it does not say, and God gives these gifts as he determines, but leadership and teaching are only for men. It doesn't say that, which would be really important if that was supposed to be a principle carried through the church. It would be very important. However, the issue at stake here is woman, a lady having authority over a man because men are supposed to lead their homes so that switches around then. How does that, how does that work? But if you've got men who are leading the church and all of us are ministering under the authority of elders who are men, suddenly it makes it very easy for ladies to exercise leadership and for ladies to exercise the gift of teaching in the life of the church because they're not having authority over. They too are submitting to the leadership of the elders like I'm doing right now submitting to the leadership of our elders and preaching under the authority of the elders. That's what we do. Does that make sense? It deals with that if you have elders who are men. Dealing with the next one, which is the correction of an elder. You might say to me, now, Matt, that's fantastic. 
you know, you've spoken about elders, you've spoken about a team. You already told me I'm nervous about leadership, church leadership. But now you've just told me that, that, that that's a team and that together you discern God's will. So what happens if together as a team you discern God's will in that direction? I totally disagree with you. What happens if you say something from the pulpit and I think it's wrong and then I go to the elders and they're like, uh-uh, we don't oppose Matt. And I go, well, can we check this? No, no, we discern together that we don't discern Matt. Uh, sorry, we don't oppose Matt in this church. Uh, you know, how do, how do we deal with that? Well, the Bible talks about the correction of an elder, and here it goes. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. It means this, friends, that if you see something in my life which is sinful, right? it means as you follow Matthew 18 and you come and you say, Hey, Matt, I've seen this in your life. In fact, I've seen you be racist Let's use that one as an example. I've seen you be racist towards this, um, the, the team, the staff team. And it's wrong. And I say to you, rubbish. I, just, I don't agree with you. Matt, I'm telling you. You get a witness to come with you. It says, bring two or three witnesses. They're all going, this is true. We've seen it. We've spoken to the team. It's true. Matt, this is what you're doing. I go, rubbish. And I continue to do it. It says this. You don't admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which means you don't hammer an elder in your personal capacity. If you're going to do that, make sure that you've got others who agree. All right? Then, as for those who persist in sin, the racist Matt who refuses to acknowledge his sin, you rebuke him in the, pub, in the presence of all. That means in this context, you bring him up and you go, Church, we've been talking to this guy for the last three months. He's continuing to be racist and treat our staff like dirt, and this is unbiblical. He refuses to repent of this, and so we are taking him out of eldership, and if he continues like this, we're going to remove him from the church. You say, my goodness, that's strong, isn't it? Like, come on, like, you know, can't he make a mistake? We're talking about sin here, and we're talking about unrepentant sin. That's what we're talking about. Why would you do this? Because, notice what it says over there, so that the rest may stand in fear. The reason why you rebuke an elder publicly is because, one, he has been uh, appointed to that position publicly, and so you remove him from that position publicly. Secondly, public sin means public confession. That, that's what it means. And this is what happens when you rebuke him publicly. The rest of you start going, oh, my word, that could have been me. And so we all make changes in our lives when we see things like that happening. We have to understand also that there is a difference between a charge and a criticism. Charges, I see sin. Criticism is, I don't really like the way he tells jokes. Okay? Charges, he's a racist. Criticism is, uh, you know what, he was walking through the parking lot and a person of another color walked past him and he didn't say hello. Okay, did he say hello to everybody else in the same? No, no, he didn't, but that, I mean, that's criticism. A charge is, I see him regularly doing it, and I see him intentionally going for it. And so there's a difference between a charge and a criticism. And the reason why we do this is because the church of Christ needs to be held highly, esteemed highly. We can't have people leading the church of Jesus Christ who are full of sin in their personal lives. And so in this way that elders lead the congregation... We want strong congregational participation with that. 
we, as elders, you don't want to lead the congregation into an area and then turn around and go, hey, where's the church gone? Like, no one's with us. So you want congregational participation with you as you go. And as a congregation, we need to be looking for men amongst us who fit these characteristics so that they too can be part of making the decisions and leading and shepherding the congregation. The last one as I close out, there's a massive responsibility for this office because judgment is greater for the elder than it is for any other believer. So Matt, I mean, how, where did you come up with that? Well, remember James chapter 3, verse 1, we were talking about uh, teaching a little while back. It says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. All, t- all elders are supposed to be teachers. A teacher gets judged more strictly. But what about Hebrews? It says this, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. As I said just now, an elder gives account, an account not only for himself but also for you. Friends, there's a massive responsibility for this office. At Sterling, when we talk about the role that elders play, while I've shared a number of points with you today, We've distilled them into three main things when we talk about elders at Sterling. One, elders' responsibility is to take care of the direction of where we're going as a church. Two, the elders' responsibility is to guard doctrine in the life of the church. And three, it is our responsibility to to help people be disciplined in their lives and to deal with discipline issues in the life of the church. Now, not all of those are massive discipline issues. Sometimes, Discipline is just simply someone putting their shoulder around, their, their arm around your shoulder and saying, hey, hey, can I pray with you? I've noticed this thing in your life. That's shepherding. We're shepherding those three things. And so some of you might be thinking today, great message, Matt. I hope all the elders were listening. Well, let me just remind you that what I've spoken about today, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're an elder or not an elder, you can apply this to your life like number one. Biblical leadership implies biblical followership. If God's word talks about leadership in such a strong way, we have to believe and agree that there is such a thing as biblical followership. And if God is going to put people in a position to lead, and we're going to appoint people to lead, we must follow well. That assumes accountability. That assumes support. Biblical followership. Secondly, the characteristics of eldership should be an example for all of us. Whether you're a man or a woman, that should be the example for all of you. Especially if you're a man. Gents, take God's word again this week. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Go to Titus chapter 1. It's one book after, after Timothy. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Read those characteristics of what an elder is. Read the characteristics in 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 Titus and see what it is. And then ask yourself, how am I doing here? If there's blatant sin that you're involved in, men, you need to step out of that and you need to repent of that sin and go, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to do this anymore. Because you are laying the seeds now for fruit that will come later. But ladies, you too, you can also read that. It is good for you to be above reproach also. It is good for you to have a good reputation with others. Ladies, it's also good for you to practice hospitality. (laughs) This is not just an elder thing. If elders are supposed to be the example, it means that's the example we all have to follow. Here it is. Read through it. Go for it. 
And then the last one for us to remember before you get full of discouragement and condemnation as you might get as you read this and just go, you know, and I don't know anybody who can read this and go, yes, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. Yeah, yeah, actually, I'm all of them. Yeah, I'm all of them. Anybody who says they're all of them, liar, right there. So let me remind you of God's word. We are all on a journey. We're all being made more and more into the likeness of Jesus. He is our chief shepherd, and he's leading us every day from one degree of glory to another. I'm so grateful that as I read this, I know that who I was yesterday, I am not today, and who I am tomorrow will not be who I am today either. And God's not finished with me yet, and God is not finished with you yet. And as God reveals stuff to you, sin to you, repent of it. And you know what? It's really good to have an example and say, I want to be like that. I want to be more gentle. I want to be less violent. I don't want to beat up people anymore. You know? I, want to be, I want to be this man that God's word talks about. And if you're a man like me, you'll know that you can't do that without Christ. You, you just can't. Because we're not wired like that. Now let's pray together. Today, I just want to encourage you to, in the closing minutes, just to do some business with the Lord. Ask Him, God, what are you, what are you saying to me? Think about the characteristics that we spoke about. What has God been challenging you on specifically? What, is he, what has He been saying to you? Has He been challenging you on a specific one, be it sexual immorality, be it um, quarrelsome, maybe it's you're in some dodgy business deals. Perhaps you today are just saying, God, I want to drink from that pure water. I want to move away from that toxic water. I want to, I want to drink pure, pure water of purity and knowing you. So God, forgive me. Ask him to forgive you of that. Ask him to help you be the man or woman that he wants you to be. So Father, we ask you in Jesus' name to come and minister forgiveness to those who have repented this morning, those who have asked you to forgive them and asked you to change their lives. Lord, would you come and just give them a great sense of a fresh start. Impress on our lives again that those who are in Christ are a new creation. Impress on our lives again that you're not finished with us, but you continue to, um, to, to mold us from one degree of glory into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that wherever we go, we would grow in and be able to, to grow in passing on a great reputation for Jesus. Spread his fame and not doubt wherever we go. In Jesus' name, amen.